From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's LinkedIn.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Really, Car? <laughs> really? Damn. Do you see what I have to put up with? I love it. <laughs> like Jesus. Oh. <laughs> 
right. Well, and welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. I'm Mary Beth, and I just learned that the taste of York peppermint patties and whiskey do not go together. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Sorry. Did, did you guys – have you guys heard that their Bud Light Seltzer is releasing a peppermint patty-flavored seltzer no. for Christmas? I can't. I don't no. – I'm just not – I'm know. unsure. I'm unsure. I, I mean, I, I would love try peppermint, it. but like as a seltzer, I, I – I don't know. Um, as you can tell, we are recording this while the world is going to hell. So um, everything's out the window. But every episode, our special guest brings it to a movie that traumatized them as a child. This, this week, our guest is writer and director Ryan Spindell. His devilish feature film debut, The Mortuary Collection, is currently streaming on Shutter. Welcome to the show, Ryan. And thank you for putting the image of peppermint patty seltzer in my – or alcoholic seltzer in my mind. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I've been I've been back and forth on it because I, I'm I'm a pretty big supporter of this Bud Light Seltzer. I think that they've they've uh-huh. done it right. But man, this it's peppermint patty thing is it's pretty good. It's pretty it's good. Really good. I liked it. I like it because I would like. We're not recording, are we? Because I really can't have the public knowing I drink seltzer. Are we recording? Oh, yeah, we are. <laughs> we we're gonna expose you. For who you truly are Ryan, a hey, seltzer drinker. I'm a I'm a basic bitch. I drink I drink White Claw. I mean, so. I love White Claw. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I, there's nothing if, wrong with seltzer. It's if it's anyone a good has for your a waist. problem with it. I'll fight them. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm coming. I'm becoming an elitist about it, though. I, like I, I don't drink yeah. white claw anymore. I wouldn't touch white claw with a ten Whoa. foot pole. <laughs> so, so it's, it's so Bud, Bud Light, Light seltzers. <laughs> look, <laughs> look. <laughs> it's weird times. All right, we're taking wild swings here. That's true. What flavor? What flavor is your Ooh, favorite? Then? Good question. Um. I, okay. I like uh, strawberry or lime. The lime tastes okay. a lot like Zima, so it reminds me of high school. <laughs> oh my god, Zima! <laughs> that brought me back to college. <laughs> Stuffing oh. Jolly Ranchers into a Zima. Ex- fucking excuse me. Yeah, that's what you would do. You'd get a Zima, and then you would like put a Jolly Rancher in it, and it would like well, I mean, supposedly you're supposed to change the flavor. I never uh, noticed anything I, different, but like I drink my Zima like- neat. <laughs> I'd like a Zima neat, please. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm glad that we started off on this fight. I think it's really setting a good tone for the rest of the episode. Uh, thank you for having and me. Now, Sorry. I, I, I really drink- botched that. You really gave it uh, a, No, what your botched it flair. is the fucking mufflerless car that just drove by. That's like what set this whole thing off on a note. And then me eating a peppermint patty and taking a drink of, of Coke and whiskey and realizing that those flavors... Not they good. don't go together. I mean, we're <laughs> just kind of doomed at this point, but. <laughs> um, so, Brian. Horror um, podcast. Brian, how'd you get into horror? Um, that's a good question. I, um, <laughs> you know, we'll talk about my pick later. Uh, my pick, we came a little bit later in my life. Um, but when I was very young, I mean, I guess this would be a different episode, but I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street on a bootleg VHS. Oh. That my uh, one one of our family friends had given us when I was probably five or so, Jesus. and uh, I was pretty much off of horror for the next ten years of my life. Or give oh, or take. really? Oh wow! Yeah, it, it really it really sort of uh, that one that one sort of broke me in a way that I was scared that if I if I ever watched another horror movie, it was just going to ruin my life. And so I spent a good amount of um, my young life being really terrified, and and also terrified of going to 
Halloween parties or sleepovers or anything in which a horror movie might be brought up and I would be exposed. Wow. 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 Holy you know, shit. It's interesting because um, for, for me, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was also kind of like a, a turning point for me, but like it made me like obsessed with horror as a kid. I think I saw it like I probably eight or nine. So it was definitely older than five, but I can't imagine seeing that at, at five, honestly. Absolutely not. Like, what do you remember the most scaring you <clears throat> in that movie? Um, I just remember it feeling so incredibly bleak. I, I, I had mm. never, I mean, again, uh, yeah, like, okay. like I said, if a few years later, I think I would have fallen into the fantasy aspect of it and just been a yeah. horror fan through and through. But I think because I saw it as like the first horror, I mean, prior to that, the only thing I'd ever seen that was horror was the, the librarian in Ghostbusters, which also scared the shit out of me. Ah, yes. Fair enough. But I think I just, my brain couldn't, couldn't process this idea of just young people getting sort of viciously murdered. And, um, mm-hmm. and so from there, I, uh, I don't know. I just had this idea. And my mom is also like a pretty hardcore anti-horror movie. And so oh. she really stoked um... those flames and kept me, kept my fear of the, of the medium. Alive and well for a really long time. But I, it's interesting because I kind of, I think if I'd been watching horror my entire life, I would sort of have a different, I'd look at it through a different lens. I think there was something nice about avoiding it until I was of the age that I started thinking a little bit more about aesthetics and the creative process. Mm. And once I sort of started getting into it, I was, you know, not only sort of going down the rabbit hole and watching everything I could, but I was kind of watching it from a, specifically for as a creative. And I think a lot of the way, I ended up sort of making films was informed by those first movies that um, that really affected me, you know, around uh, maybe freshman year in high school when I started getting on the horror train again. Wow. So when when you were like a freshman in high school, what brought you back into horror? Do you remember what, what the movie was or? I do. It was two movies. Uh, basically, it was like a in, two movies I saw in one week. That was kind of a one two punch. The first was um, I mean, this one is pretty cliche, but the first was uh, Evil Dead 2. Oh, um, classic. Which I, a friend sort of brought over to my house and I, it was the first time I'd ever, I'd ever thought about the people behind the camera who were making the movie. It was the first oh, time yeah. I, I felt like I could see the seams and I could see the filmmaker behind it and I could see that they were having a blast and I really sort of fell in love with that. And I also, I, I've always been kind of like an art kid. So I, I wanted to be a cartoonist most of my life mm. and I was... I'm very hands-on. I, I grew up in a small town, very remote. And so I spent a lot of my time outside either uh, making stuff or uh, reading. And so mm, when I okay. saw that movie, it sort of appealed to the kind of like tactile artist portion of me. And I was like, I want to oh, do yeah. that. I want to build those sets. I want to make those gore gags. I want to sort of kind of live in that world. And I saw Brain Dead slash uh, Dead Alive. Oh, Yeah. Ooh, what a good week! It was the best week of my life. It, it was it changed my <laughs> changed my life. That like That's not amazing. even exaggerating. The, I I think of the two movies, uh, Dead Alive, is sort of more the aesthetic that I really was became drawn to because I love the storytelling and the kind of pulpiness of it. Mm. But I those two movies are movies I watch uh, at least once or twice a year, and I and, and they really sort of those are the foundation from which I built everything else. That's amazing. I heard like a couple years ago, Peter Jackson was talking about doing like a 4K restoration of uh of his uh, Dead Alive, Brain Dead, and I I haven't heard anything re- about it recently, but I I really would like to see that. I love that movie, but I haven't seen it since. Gosh, I was in college, probably. I, I have been keeping tabs on this. Apparently, he shot <laughs> like 
12 or 13 hours of behind the scenes footage while he was making those movies that have never oh, been wow. edited oh. and, and sort of released. And so it's going to be a pretty robust. He's been doing that. He's been shooting behind the scenes since the very beginning because he's just fascinated with the process. And so he supposedly, if they ever come out with this Blu-ray that I've been waiting for for 10 years, uh, it's going <laughs> to be something else. That's yeah. amazing. I still have to see that movie. Flips. What? It's, it's ridiculous. I know. <sighs> you got to see it. I mean, I know. I, I'm wondering how it f- would feel to a modern audience who's never who'd never seen it because at the time, I mean, I, I would argue that nobody has ever matched or topped it to this day. But at the time, it was just so far beyond anything I'd ever seen that it was like I, yeah. my mouth was just hanging open the entire time I watched it, and still does. It still does. Well, you know, the thing is, is the first time I saw that movie, I did not like it because oh. I was like, it was like told to me that, and we'll get into that with the movie that you chose today too, because it was told to me that it was like, you know, the scariest horror, most horrifying mm-hmm. movie ever. And I get to the part where the priest is saying, I kick ass for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and I was just not, I was not prepared for it. But like, since then, like I, I absolutely adore it. But the first time I saw that movie, I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a weird – that's an interesting challenge, um, I think, when you're on the filmmaking side of it and you're making movies that kind of live in that genre-blending world where there's there's mm. sort of a sense of humor there, but it's not necessarily a comedy and there's horror. And it's something that I've dealt with a lot in, in my career as a filmmaker and that I tend to make movies that are sort of um, – yeah, genre blending, I guess, if that's not a yeah. pretentious term to say. And, no. um, and I've seen, you know, I read all the reviews and, and I, there are some people that just don't like it. And I, uh, that's fine. I mean, that's, yeah, I, of course, I want everybody to love everything, but like, you know, that comes with the territory. There, there's always like a decent selection of people who just went in with a different expectation and they're just pissed off that their expectations weren't met. And that's right. something that like, as a as a filmmaker, but even more so as a people pleaser, uh, is really hard to wrap <laughs> your brain around because you want to make something that people just respond to, but if you try to like a- appease everybody, you just make something that that pleases nobody. So it's this constant push and pull of of, of how to sort of pull it off. Yeah. So as an adult, though, what what do you think draws you to the, to the genre now? Is it is it still that kind of childhood fear that you're trying to chase after, or is it more thematic stuff? Uh, I think it's it's sort of twofold on the on the creative side. It's I, I do think it's the genre that allows the most room to play. I just mm-hmm. think it's you can do yeah. everything. You the the unexpected is expected, and you're really allowed to sort of push the boundaries. And I mean, hot take, but I think it's the most cinematic of genres for that reason. I agree. I definitely agree. We always talk about how like elastic it is because you can like attach it to almost any other genre and make something interesting and make something that you could like explore themes for or you can do things that other like a, a typical drama couldn't do a hundred percent and 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 you're allowed like especially with the mortuary collection because it sort of is multiple stories and they're all different subgenres. i sort of had an open field to kind of do whatever i wanted you know as long as it wasn't so far out of tone that it would pull people out and uh and it was cool just going like okay what's What's the craziest thing that could happen on this elevator? Like, let's do that. Or what's the weirdest <laughs> thing that she could say in this moment? Uh, I just love that. I, I love the the lack of boundaries. And sometimes I think about – I worry about, you know, becoming an older filmmaker and becoming more uh, serious and mm, and sort mm-hmm. of losing some of that wild abandon that I think is what made me want to make movies in the first place. 
you know, as you've grown up watching horror movies and watching probably a ton of horror movies, do you ever feel that childhood fear you felt watching Nightmare on Elm Street? I do. I feel it all the time. Hell yeah. That's I, awesome. I, That's I, so I, cool. It's a, no, it's alive and well. And I think it's one of the, you know, I can, we could do a whole other podcast on all the sort of pitfalls of, of making this your life's work. But, um, <laughs> I, I do. I, I watch movies and the best movies. I, I stop. I don't think of them analytically at all. I, I go, I go right in for the ride and I'm all on board. And I live a lot of, I feel these same feelings even being on set and standing at the monitor and watching a really beautiful performance or, or a set or a gag come that sort of, works or a happy accident like i feel that same feeling i felt when i was you know eight years old and watching you know back to the future or something like that um so i i feel like you know for all the the negatives of sort of being a struggling artist for a living Mm. um i i do maintain this sort of childlike sense of wonder that i feel like a lot of people kind of are missing in in sort of adult life that's cool and you know Kind of transitioning to the to the mortuary collection, I f- I feel that in that collection, that sort of like uh, Mary Beth and I were kind of talking um, while she was watching it this this week. Like, there's like a, a sense of of whimsy yeah. and also like a devilish nature to to the whole collection as a whole. But before we do dive into that, can you tell our listeners what the mortuary collection is about, in case they haven't seen it yet for some stupid reason? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys thinking? Um... <laughs> Um, yeah, sure. The, uh, the Mortuary Collection is an anthology horror film. Uh, I usually start out just talking about what an anthology is because I, I discovered surprisingly that a lot of people don't, um, don't know. It's, it's a, it's a term that's kind of gone out of favor. So, really? Um, yeah, it's, it's wild. Hmm. It's wild, especially huh. the normies. Normies really don't know the term. <laughs> <laughs> What is um, an anthology? An anthology. I'm glad you <laughs> asked. Thank you for asking. Um, an anthology <laughs> film is uh, is a is sort of a uh, a potpourri of of films. It's usually several short films uh, that are tied together by a larger wraparound story. And I think uh, the best ones uh, they all the sort of parts uh, make a greater whole. Mm-hmm. And so the Mortuary Collection is just that. It is very much a throwback to the. The old anthology films from the 70s and 80s, uh, the Amicus films from England, and then yep. uh, Creepshow and, and the Romero efforts that sort of came later in the 80s and that sort of made it made it a thing here in America. And I think that went on to become, you know, Tales from the Crypt and all of that jazz. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, my oh, favorite so from that, good. that decade. So good. The unofficial Creepshow 3, Tales from the Dark I know. Side. And honestly, in my opinion, hot take, I think it's better than the Creepshow movies. Oh, but. shit. <laughs> um... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna straight out argue with you, but only because in the process of making this film, I've been studying anthology films like crazy, and I, mm. Creepshow will probably always be this one that sort of holds a huge place in my heart because it was the first and it was the yeah. one that I, I revisited the most. But I think there are significant weaknesses in that movie that we could get into if you want down the road. <laughs> anyway, wow. Well, this is the longest description ever. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in the vein of, of the classic uh, horror anthology movies, they uh, a young girl shows up at a sort of decrepit old mortuary that's on the outskirts of town to apply for a job. And while she's in this mortuary, she meets this sort of eccentric, very creepy mortician named Montgomery Dark and she notices that Montgomery's mortuary is full of books old leather bound tombs and so she says you know what's the deal with all these books and he says well these are a collection of uh, all the reasons why people have passed through these halls Uh, and she's like wow so these are just stories about people who died 
uh, and they are. And uh, she says, well, tell me, tell me some of the best ones. What's the, what's the craziest shit you've seen working in this place for what looks like two or 300 years? <laughs> so he starts to tell her stories and he tells each story kind of becomes progressively more complex and uh, mm. uh, morally a bit more gray. And the whole time she's sort of criticizing his old fashioned styles. And mm. at, he des- she decides at the end that she's going to tell him a story of her own. And that is the Mortuary Collection. I love Montgomery Dark so much. <laughs> he is he is Bay. I love him. He's the best. He really is. He I I I never imagined he would be uh when I was writing him, I never would have imagined how much he would have developed and evolved through the process of pre-production and then casting Clancy Brown. It's it's really special oh, to he's see. He's so good. He's so good. I know. I feel like I feel like he's he's so great. We're so used to seeing him as playing these sort of side characters that kind of pop off the screen, but then you kind of forget about him that I feel like since this movie's come out and people have been sort of reaching out on Twitter and on Instagram and sort of just on social media in general, I feel like Clancy Brown is like everyone's favorite actor that they kind of forgot about. Yes. Yeah. And I love that this movie's putting him front and center. I was laughing. I was like, I know Clancy Brown is Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. <laughs> I was like, he probably hates that. But I was like, he he's... doesn't. He loves it. It's like a generational thing, too, because like uh, for me, it was like I remember him from Pet Cemetery too, back in the early 90s. Me too. So like I, I, I and like the Shawshank Redemption. So like I, I think that like he I mean, he's had like an amazing, amazingly long career. And I, I think people seem to like rediscover him as you said like you kind of forget about him but he um he keeps emerging in these in these wonderful roles like honestly and i I, i've seen this all over over twitter now but like i kind of expected him to at one point say boy because he's given me like tall man realness in this in this movie (laughs) he is and i know that was uh that was an early conceptually Montgomery was sort of a fusion of uh, the tall man from the Phantasm movies and the the preacher from Poltergeist 2. Oh my gosh, yes. Mm. I could see that. Have you seen Poltergeist 2, Mary Beth? No. <laughs> it's 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 why it's worth it just for this character who is played yeah. by um, this amazing actor who is actually in the process of I think dying of cancer, which is so sad. Oh, that's but awful. his his because of it, his he was emaciated and very like tall, but like kind of skeletal. And it really terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's been baked into my brain ever since I've seen, I almost, I never remember anything else about that movie except for (laughs) that character. I remember, um, coach drinking the worm from the tequila Mm. and then Mm -hmm. barfing up a worm thing of himself. (laughs) Like phenomenal. That's all I remember from the movie. (laughs) I, I was sort of revisiting it recently. And, um, I want to sit down and watch it again because one of the things I'd forgotten about is it is chock full of these Nightmare on Elm Street-esque practical horror set pieces. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. And, and the um, um, the braces coming alive and attacking the kid. I remember Excuse that too. Excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the braces, the, like strings, right? They, they, yes. The braces attack the whole family, <laughs> which is insane. And he, wait, It's he, wild. So, Okay. It's wild. Mary Beth, he drinks a <laughs> bottle of tequila and he swallows the worm. Then mm-hmm. he pukes up a uh, this massive worm that's like half worm, half humanoid. And then it turns – in all practical effects, it turns into a humanoid monster. Like before his eyes, it like grows and pulsates and like a slimy like sack like rips loose. And it just like evolves into what looks like a brundle fly on the living room floor. And I was yeah. watching it and I was just like – 
wait, this is Poltergeist 2? What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they really go for it in the sequels, I have to say. They do. So, like, okay, but you kind of buried the lead a little bit with, like, the, the opening. Because I'll tell you, the thing that immediately grabbed me about the Mortuary Collection is the town of Raven's End mm. itself. Yes. Because, like, immediately, immediately, I was, like, transfixed. I was like, okay, this isn't just a typical, like, because I was like, ah, an anthology film. Okay, I'll get into it. But, like, from the the get-go, it has this, like, storybook quality, but at the same time, like, this could be one town away from, like, the Dunwich horror. <laughs> yes. Which is, the, which is the idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, where did you film this? Because <laughs> I want to live there. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Um, well, we filmed this in a few different places because it took me – I was filming this on again, off again for about two years. So we bounced mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. But we shot a lot of – if not – we shot most of the interiors and most of the segments here in Los Angeles. Oh. Just on – in old houses and, and sets and old abandoned places we could find. And then um, all the exteriors and the uh, the mortuary itself was all shot in Astoria, Oregon. <gasps> Goonies. Oh. Goonies. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Actually, the house, so the, the mortuary, the house that we shot in is called the Flavel House. It's a mansion in uh, in the middle of Astoria. And that is the museum in Goonies where uh, Mikey's <gasps> dad works. So at the beginning, he rides by his dad and his dad's like putting up an American flag yeah. or something. Yeah. That's the Flavel Whoa. House. Cool. Wow. So cool. You, <laughs> you can't drive around that town and not hear the Goonies theme song in your head. It's impossible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is it is sort of like a like a a cinematic. It, ha- it holds resonance in my brain. That is for sure. <laughs> it feels like it too. It felt it felt like. I mean, I wouldn't say that I felt like I was in the Goonies per se, but I did feel like I was living in Raven's End for the two months that I was up there. It was foggy every day. Uh, oh. I lived walking distance from where we shot, and we shot in a few different places around town. And it really was uh, sort of easy to slip into the role, the creative role of kind of figuring out the the landscape and, and, and sort of realizing it on film because it felt like we were living there, which was really cool. That is so cool. So how did you conceive of the place that is Raven's End? Like, where did that – it like, it's just so well realized and gorgeous. So what was that like coming up with that world? Uh, it was a, it was like sort of an ever-evolving process. I, I immediately – Yeah. When I first started, I remember uh, sitting in a coffee shop. Uh, this was like – Man, eight years ago. And I remember wow. thinking like, I want to write – what's the movie I want to see the most? It doesn't matter if it's going to be tricky or hard or doesn't sell. Like what's the movie I'd like to see most? And um, I had been watching a lot of the old Amicus films and, and I love that mm. format. And so I decided to do an anthology film. So my initial aesthetic idea was very gothic. I was I was leaning hard into the sort of gothic aspect of it all. And mm-hmm. the town itself, I had some concept sketches. I did some myself. I had my friend draw some. Uh, and it was a very much like a, if not European town, um, it was, it was, yeah, like a HP Lovecraft coastal New England, you know, right. cobblestone okay. streets and old rotting wharfs and, and mountains in the distance. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out where we could shoot that in, uh, the continental, uh, North America. And, um, we were almost shot it in Montreal, which is a very European city. Yeah. We just didn't have the budget to, to act, take the production up there, even if it was going to be mm. small. And so we started checking out the Pacific Northwest because I was like, well, let's at least go where there's dramatic landscapes. We want everything to be heightened. And, mm-hmm. uh, we kind of toured the whole state. And when the last place we went was Astoria. And I was like, oh, this is, this is just it. And so the interesting thing is we shot a lot of the interior stuff 
prior to going to Astoria. So I was kind of leaning into the Gothic when, um, for a lot of it. And then when I saw Astoria, I was like, okay, we're, it's going to be a little switcheroo. It's still going to be somewhat Gothic, but now we're going to lean into more of this, uh, sort of Victorian, uh, Americana sort of coastal town thing. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, at the time I was, I was sort of bummed because I have a very specific ideas of how I want everything to look. Um, but in retrospect now, I think I kind of love the, the weirdness of the, the Victorian houses set against the cliffs, set against the ocean. It's so cool. And I also like, it's like super kind of happy. And then you have like, you know, the weird catch that's all tentacled and (laughs) the horror, like the weird newspaper headlines. And it's just got this like kind of almost welcome to Night Vale feel. If you've listened to that podcast where it's like, oh, it's a normal town. And then you're like, oh, wait, there's something kind (laughs) of weird brewing underneath the surface. And I love that vibe of the film. It's so cool. Thank you. And then of course, as we get into the anthology, like the stories, (laughs) it gets even weirder. But yeah, no. And that was the, I think in the original script, it opened opened with um there were two police officers they were like partners and the whole idea was like these two blue collar guys who um all they want to do is just go home and like hang out with their family <laughs> but they keep having to battle supernatural menaces oh. um, <laughs> i mean this could definitely be like a sequel right? it, it could be it could be and and that's been brought up but the idea was these two cops that um we opened with them and they showed up in all of the stories and they were the end they were like the bookend and they were really fun because they were sort of the levity. You can see them in the babysitter murders. Mm-hmm. Um, they pop up, but they oh, used yeah. to be in everything. Yeah. Um, and, and that was sort of the, the, the concept. And, and I think we still sort of pulled it off a little bit, but the concept was to really show that there were like hundreds, if not thousands of more, uh, stories kind of creeping in the shadows, every sort of nook and cranny of Raven's End. And it's sort of like, like, I'm not sure if Raven's End even exists on this plane. I think it's, it's something else altogether. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, like, I'm, I've watched this film a number of times now, and every single time, like, I'm always, like, scanning the backgrounds of, like, the, the kind of interstitials with, especially with, like, Raven's End, the beginning part, because I'm like, there, it feels like a place that is just full of, of mystery and, and wonder, and <sighs> I really would like to live there, monsters and all, to be honest. It's kind of amazing. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe if there's a sequel, the sequel would be called Raven's End. There you Ooh. go. Ooh, that would be so cool. Um, so you kind of talked a little bit about the babysitter murders, and from from what I understand, you actually had that shot, and you at, and you had sent it around to like festivals earlier as a short film, correct? Yes, I, I wrote the movie uh, as a feature first, and then mm-hmm. I put I kind of looked at the the different segments, and I picked the one that was the most contained and had the least amount of actors, and I kind of pulled it out, and um, I did a Kickstarter and made that one as a proof of concept to sort of show oh, people wow. what it could be. It's it's probably well. I I can't I can't tell if it's my favorite or my second favorite because I really like the 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 safe sex segment. I know, um, <laughs> but like it it definitely I I when I was watching it and I and I heard like the background I was like oh yeah I could definitely see this as like a proof of concept type thing. It's tricky too, right? Because we I remember looking at the segments and trying to decide which one I was going to try to make, and a couple of them uh, the the safe sex one and there was originally a different segment altogether as the first segment were just impossible they they had too many locations and exteriors and all kinds of stuff oh, that I couldn't yeah. pull off but I definitely remember thinking that being worried about the babysitter murders because it was the the biggest like aha story and it also had mm-hmm. the most sort of um the biggest surprises that could potentially ruin some stuff in the movie if you'd already seen it. So it was, it was kind of a, a tough one to, to figure out 
if we should go ahead with it. But I think ultimately it was like, look, it's so hard to get a movie made. Let's pick our shining star. Let's make it the yeah. best we can. And then we'll worry about how the others hold up, you know, after the fact. I definitely screamed at the end when I won't spoil it, but <laughs> I was like, holy shit. <laughs> of the yeah, end of that one. It was so yeah. good. I love awesome. like, I love a good inversion of a slasher movie. It's so good. I, I love see- yeah. I love seeing I love seeing not traditional characters as the slasher killer. It's amazing. It's like always my favorite. You know what was interesting too is that that concept came to me because I was thinking about so I'm a I'm a monster kid. I, I like monster mm-hmm. movies best. That's my thing. Um, especially sort of small, uh, more personal monsters like the fly or like the thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually thinking about how much I don't like slasher movies. I was like, oh, it's the one subgenre I just cannot get into because it's oh. so, it, it's like the romantic comedy of, of horror. It's like, it's so predictable and it's the same thing again and again. It's just people getting killed in interesting ways and I lose interest in that. And in thinking about that, the idea for the babysitter murders kind of came to me. And the, and the ironic thing is that once I started working on the babysitter murders, I started studying all these sort of slasher movies that I've kind of avoided my whole life and sort of came, fell in love with the subgenre in the process. So it's interesting because awesome. that entire movie came from a place of, I really don't like slashers that much. How could I make it interesting? But I kind of, mm. uh, I kind of came around. Huh. Before we, we move on, I do want to talk a little bit about the safe sex segment and how <laughs> that one came about because Oh, so good. I, I think again it, it's it goes back to kind of the casting because gosh, I don't know what his name is, but the Jacob? the kind of guy the guy yeah, the guy that plays the, the douche. Oh Jacob Alordi, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's great. Um Jacob, yes. He uh, like I remember seeing him in um I, I think he was in Euphoria this yes. summer. Um yes. isn't that where I saw him from? Yeah. And he is just that quintessential like bad boy that yet I as a gay man am like lusting over. <laughs> I mean, I, I as a straight man am also lusting over him. So I mean, he's he's so he he's so cocky and yet charismatic at the same time. How how did you come up with this idea? I have to ask. Uh, the 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 concept. I, yeah, I think so. I I love short. I love the short format. I think. Uh, the key to the best shorts, I think, is simplicity. And so with uh, – when I'm thinking of short horror ideas, I usually just start thinking about specific types of characters and how they could get their comeuppance. That's – it's like the, the A and B. Mm. Like what's an interesting – like uh, what's a character a lot of people don't like? Uh, a meter maid, for instance. OK. What's an <laughs> ironic way a meter maid could sort of get their comeuppance? And so that's kind of my starting spot. Mm. And I think I know – I mean this is – really sort of expanded since then because i wrote this so long ago but the super woke guy who uses his wokeness to uh for his own benefit and doesn't really uh sort of attach himself to to the true meaning of what he's saying i thought was definitely somebody who should get it and i never would have anticipated that it would become such a such a thing uh now when it came out so that was sort of a nice surprise yeah, and it was a really cool inversion of the rape revenge story. I'm really, I really love rape revenge stories, and this one was like not exactly. It it was not like an explicit rape sequence, but you can make an argument that removing a condom without consent sure. is a form of rape. But it was just such a 
cool re- like way of retelling that kind of that well-tread story storyline especially yeah. with an exploding penis <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah just exploding dick it's fine <laughs> and and i think that's the kind of the idea for the all of these stories was that it wasn't like i was trying to reinvent the wheel with any of the stories it's sort of like mm-hmm. thinking about the way that um old anthology movies work thinking about the way that tales from the crypt yeah. work um they're not it's not really about these big sort of uh, mind-bending surprises like that yeah. you didn't see the story going this way because you kind of know that they're always sort of morality tales where somebody gets their comeuppance. That's sort of the formula. But what's right. – I think what's fun about it is it's how you get there. It's the sort of the, the 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 journey from A to B is where you can really have the most fun. And so I think that was the idea for all the stories was to come up with a very simple – like. Some my friend was like, "Oh, I it it kind of bums me out in this movie that you know everyone's going to get their comeuppance." And I'm like, "Well, they're all bodies in the mortuary, so they're all dead." <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of yeah, that's not like a real criticism. That was sort of that's part of the plan. But like, did you like how how you got there? Is sort of, um, and that's where Tales from the Crypt really lives too. I mean, yeah, to a, to a cartoony degree, I would say. Yeah. So we have talked about the Mortuary Collection, but Ryan, what movie have you brought with you today? Oh, okay. Uh, I have brought Return of the Living Dead. They only come out at night. They're mean, rude, and dead. Not them. Them. There's a hundred of those things out there. How many did you say? A hundred? The dead are refusing to remain buried. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to call the boss. They've come back to life. They're hungry. And they're not vegetarians. The graveyard out there is full of people coming out of the ground. We have a little problem. What the hell is going on there? Rabbit weasels. What? More brains. Do you Back from the grave and ready to party. The return of the living dead. Okay, very excited to talk about this. So, for those unfamiliar with Return of the Living Dead, I mean, who hasn't seen Return of the Living Dead? What are they, what are people doing with their lives? Um, this is my first time watching it, so um, yep. anyway. Um, <laughs> So, when two bumbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air, the vapors cause the dead to reanimate as zombies go on a rampage through Louisville, Kentucky, seeking their favorite food. Brains. <laughs> Brains. 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 <laughs> so, Ryan, tell us, like, paint us a picture here. Like, when was the first time you saw this? What was the scene? How are you feeling Tell us everything. Oh, uh, so this is this. I, I saw this in the best way that you can see a horror movie. It's oh. waking up in the middle of the night and the TV's on and it's just <gasps> on. It hasn't oh my been. God, oh shit! Shit! <laughs> I've made no commitment to this movie. <laughs> I've bleary-eyed woke up at like two in the morning in my house, and I was probably this is right. This might have been uh, right around what I was talking about earlier. That sort of. 12 to 13 year old range Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was just on and i just 
couldn't believe what I was seeing. It is <laughs> this movie is simultaneously the most hilarious and yeah. deeply upsetting film yes! I've seen to this day. Yes. Yes. I did not expect it to be so upsetting. Like it was really <laughs> upsetting. <laughs> anyway, it's so you I had and still do deep existential dread watching that movie in Holy ways shit. that you don't anticipate. And the like sometimes it's a, a horror movie with comedy. It's like this is fun because it's scary one minute and it's funny the other. That one actually takes those two feelings to extremes and then like kind of slams them against each other and yeah. kind of leaves you as an audience a little bit unclear of where you're going to land on anything. Um, and I just watched it again this morning and it's, just, I, I just can't get over that movie. It's, it never gets old. It's so good. So you, you woke up and you saw this in the middle of the night. Um, do you remember what, what scene it was on when you started watching it? I, I do. It was pretty much the beginning because I caught, oh, wow. I caught everything. Yeah. Which is, which is really lucky because I, I think the way it builds is so wonderful, but I can definitely remember that the scene that, that sort of, knocked my my whole head for a loop and and was is so disturbing and and sort of is ingrained in my brain is the scene where the zombies are it's also important to note i think that when this movie came out zombies weren't a thing like they are now zombies yeah. were there was, there was Return, night of the living dead there was i think dawn of the dead by that point yeah. yeah but these were few and far between there was zombie 2 and they were still like hard to find good zombie movies and this yep. one just sort of appeared and it just took everything, all the zombie lore and all of the sort of rules and just blew them up with like a nuclear bomb, quite literally. And so um, it was this. Oh, one. Day of the Dead came out the same year. Oh, really? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. There's an interesting 1995. story behind this movie, too, how it got made. Yeah, there sure is. Uh, but yeah, so it was the scene. There's, a, there's one sequence where. I, and I suggest people watch it before listening to this because you just should see it raw. Oh, but, yeah. No, we're going to spoil everything. <laughs> zombies are attacking through a window and uh, one of the zombies gets halfway through the window and the, the survivors end up severing the zombie in half. And so um, they yep. pull a torso, a female torso, which is basically a skeletal, a spine, yes. some arms and a head and they strap it to the table and – they ask and the, the, the zombies speak and they keep saying brains and they ask the zombie, why brains? And she says, uh, uh, it stops the pain. The yes. pain yes. of being the dead. The pain of being dead. I can feel myself rotting. <laughs> and the, it's so heavy and so intense. It really is, though. When I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is where we're going. I'm kind of sad right now. This is really heartbreaking. Like this poor zombie. I know that like is eating brains and has, but her spine is like waggling back and forth, and she just wants to the pain to stop. And I'm like, oh Jesus! It starts to color everything. Everything you've seen yes. before it. Yes, because like all of the like moaning of the zombies is because they're in such fucking pain. Pain, and you can't. There's no relief. There's no way out. No, it's hell. It's literally hell. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. like literally, like because again, they they make a comment about they they try to compare it to the original Night of the Living Dead, and they're like, oh, we got to kill the brain, and obviously, early on in the movie, it's established that no, killing the brain doesn't doesn't solve anything. Right, and they died. I thought you said if we destroyed the brain, it die. It worked in the movie. Well, it ain't working now, Frank. I mean, the movie line. 
And in fact, just doing anything to them doesn't really solve anything, which makes me wonder after they've been incinerated, are they still little bits of, of atoms that are still in pain? Like, oh, how, how existential dark. is this? I know. Yes. This movie, though, man. Um, and then they talk about there's a one point where they, uh, I think it's right after this, the, um, the torso scene. And they're talking about how you can't you can't kill them because they're already dead, which is obvious. But um, there is no there is no way out. And I'm like, does that mean? But but the characters still retain some of their former humanity, even though they're in pain. So it's not even just like a reanimated like tissue. It's like actual. It's actually you. Yeah. Yeah, because I was so I was so like blown away with them being intelligent and being able to really talk and like thought processes and planning and it really like you said it's it's a person it's not just like a mindless zombie it's a real person but right so you saw these these parts as a 12 13 year old so like what were the repercussions how did it affect you after you watched it at midnight (laughs) i mean i think even the way i'm talking about it now i'm realizing how much it still affects me Mm. i think it's just again it's it's the it's the existential crisis uh, of of it all and something that you don't anticipate from a film that's that looks like a, a living comic book and at that age you know an age where you kind of feel invincible and you kind of feel like you're going to live forever the movie sort of started making me think about the the finiteness of life and the human form and what things could be worse than uh pain or dying in, in ways that um that are still sort of hard to, to think about. And I think you're right. It's that sadness that you, you mentioned. I, the, the, the existential dread sort of manifests as deep sadness, which is so wild for, for, for a, a comedy. Oh, especially when you're that young and you're like, holy shit, I'm going to confront the reality of death. Like that is so intense. <laughs> and like trying to make sense of that. At that age. It is. And in this movie in particular, I turned me on – I was like so into zombies after this movie and and really spent such a big part of my young life trying to find zombie movies that that stood up to to this movie that that sort of made me think Mm. and and had the sort of creativity and sort of cleverness in a fun package that this one had. And and I – you know, I I saw them all and – it's interesting now because I, I I feel like I would rather jump off a cliff than watch another zombie movie because I just think they're so <laughs> they've been drilled into the dirt. I mean, there's like the zo- zombie cantaloupes. It's like and everything is a zombie now, and it, it yeah. sort of it's lost its meaning. But at that time, it was like it was just uh, such a such a impactful film. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because um, when I was a kid, I saw this movie probably in my teens, either like high school like late high school or early college is what i'm guessing mm-hmm. because like there was a there's a point in time where I've, t- I've talked about this on the podcast before where like i i kind of fell out of watching horror movies and my earlier my parents who used to let me watch like a lot of r-rated movies all of a sudden like clamped down and so this was one as, as a kid that i would see the poster of because the poster is quite evocative of like the the, the punk rock zombies spray painting on mm-hmm. on like the the uh the tombstones and whatnot and i remember in particular the the sequel which I rewatched this week and did not hold up. But Mm. for me, I remember that that in particular, like the posters for these two movies, like really were ingrained in my head. And so when I saw them as a teenager, I was 
it's not what I was expecting. And I was one of those, those teenagers that was like a horror comedy, blah. And so when, when the zombies are running around calling like, I'm in this rush. Send more uh, you know, send more paramedics and send more <laughs> cops. I was like this again, it was, it was sort of like with the brain dead movie or dead yeah. alive is like, I was like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not scary. Although I did not, <laughs> I don't think I was like smart enough to really pick up on like the existential dread happening. Cause I, again, I saw this later and I was like, wow, this movie is, is brilliant. But you know, I, I honestly think that what might've colored it thinking back on it now was that I think before I saw this movie, I actually saw it kind of parodied in a way on Simpsons. Yes. Because there's a yes. Simpsons episode that is, I, I guess it's, I, I think it's the Treehouse of Horror 3. Um, but it's, it's basically like supposedly like a parody of Night of the Living Dead, but the zombies walk around and go brains and they tap on Homer's head. Take me, take me. And he doesn't have any brains. So like, <laughs> so like they kind of move on and like, brains. but like that kind of like colored my expectations going into this movie. And I didn't realize that that movie is actually where like this kind of all came from it's true i mean there there is this certain i I must have seen this movie early enough that i i hadn't gotten to my cynical teenager phase right yet (laughs) right and because i think i saw this one evil dead 2 and and dead alive all around the same period of time i sort of fell in love with that with that sort of strange sort of genre and then never never fell out of it but i could definitely see there's like this period of your life where you you have this sort of cynicism, and I could see where yep. I kick ass. Oh, I kick ass for the Lord, being uh, right. just corny. <laughs> where you're like, I just wa- I just want to be scared. I came here to be scared. What is this? And now thinking back on it, because again, when I was when I was a teenager, I also saw Evil Dead too for the first time, and I hated it because mm-hmm. I loved the first one because it was so it was like so scary, and the second one was so silly to me that like it wasn't until later on in life that like I now can like appreciate like I love horror comedy is like my my go-to now but when i was growing up as a teenager i i think it was that like you said cynical time where i was just like this movie's not scary (laughs) (laughs) when did you turn the corner i'm curious you know i i think it was early 20s um and i don't i can't i'm trying to think of what it would have it was probably Shaun of the dead actually Mm -hmm. it was Shaun of the dead i think that like i finally was like okay I get this. I, I get where this is where this is coming from, and I and I saw like it parodying and like celebrating the genre in a way that kind of allowed me maybe to appreciate horror. I, th- I think that probably was was it. That's that's a great one. I mean that that that's a, that's great. I mean then that means Shaun of the Dead is is gateway horror for horror comedies. Yeah, I mean yeah, that was two thousand four. So I would have been I would have been twenty three at the time. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that that might have been it. But Mary Beth, you had not seen this movie before. No, I hadn't. Um, again, as we talk about on this podcast all the time, I am a little bit younger. <laughs> and so I have a lot more blind spots in like 80s horror, mostly because my dumb ass was not interested in it until recently. So I watched this movie on election day with one of my friends. <laughs> we were streaming it together because we were like... I was like, I have to watch this for a podcast. Everything sucks. Let's watch. And then she was like, let's watch Fuck the Movies all day. So we watched this one. And it was the best experience. Like, we were, <laughs> like, had, like, a chat going. And it, I know that's, like, not the way you should watch a movie. But it was just so fun. Like, it was the most, 
it was fun and sad and it was just the distraction I needed. And it's just like, again, another movie where I'm realizing why did I overlook this for so long? It's perfect. Like, it's so fun and gross and sad and just like an amazing zombie movie. And I didn't realize that this is where they had the first time of zombies saying brains and fast zombie. Terry told me this fast zombies. Yeah. And so it's just such a, I don't hear it talked about as much. I don't know if that's just my circles, but I don't hear it talked about as much as such a crucial part of horror cinema and zombie cinema specifically. And it should should be talked about more, at least from what I see. You're right. I think in the way that, there are so many horror movies that I think get talked about endlessly that maybe don't deserve it. This one definitely is is a little bit more. I mean, it has a huge cult following, obviously, but I, yeah, I, don't, exactly. I don't think I don't think it's a big surprise that you missed it. Yeah, I know, and I'm bummed about that though because again, like it seems it's so influential. And I mean, Tar Man, come on now, these practical effects again, practical effects are just a chef's kiss. Like they're just <laughs> amazing. It's just such a it's like an amazing sensory overload in like the best way possible. Yeah, and I remember even even though I didn't I was when I when I first saw it I didn't like the movie. I remember when Twenty Eight Days Later came out and the other was like, "Oh my god, Fast Zombies!" I'm like, "Dude, they did this back in the '80s. What are you talking about? Like this isn't like that movie gets credited for like the the kind of like fast moving you know zombie craze." And I'm like, "Well, but this actually happened in the '80s." <laughs> It's true. I guess I guess zombies just ate flesh. They didn't eat brains prior to Return of Living Dead. Right. I don't think. Yeah. No. Yeah, they were just They were just like ghouls. Yeah. They're just like not on flesh. And this one was like much more explicitly like, oh, we don't want to eat people, we want to eat their brains specifically. Right. It actually says like, yeah, exactly. It's like we don't even we're not even gonna like eat a hand or two for a snack. It's we just need to get into the head <laughs> as quickly as possible. <laughs> so watching this uh now um in 2020 uh freddie and frank's story because they're they're presented as like the kind of bubbling idiots mm-hmm. and like they're like oh gosh especially especially like frank he's like and right over here frank right here and when it comes out you brain it with that axe oh jesus well, how am i gonna stop it from mine what's the matter with you frank oh he's he's such a like a worrisome character he kind of reminds me in a way of like homer of that kind of like ah, i don't know what i'm doing kind of like but their story is is actually incredibly incredibly sad i realized watching it this time because they're basically dying through the entire course of the film and you see it, you know, you know what's happening right from the top. Whether you know the rules of the of zombies or not, you can. You, they're so sick when they hit that canister. I think I'm going to be sick. And they're coughing, yep. and it's like I was just sort of blown away by how realistically they seem like they're going to vomit at at any point. Oh, I know. It, like, made me sick this time. Like, I was like, oh, God, will you just stop coughing? <laughs> I know. It's insane. And and then where um, – wait, which one is uh, which one is the, the older guy, the guy who's, like, training him? Which What's his name? Frank. Frank. His name's the, Frank. His uh, – where he ends up going at the end – Oh, geez. Is, uh, is again, like, if the – if the A of my existential dread was the corpse, the the torso on the table, the B was was Frank crawling into the incinerator uh, because yes. that was the only out. Forgive me. Burn the 
that was one of those moments where my friend and I were like, this movie keeps swinging back and forth and it is an emotional roller coaster. We were just like, it was, it's whiplash, but like I enjoyed it, but it was very much like, holy shit, this movie gets very real he and takes very his, upsetting. He takes his wedding ring off and puts it on the switch Ugh. that he uses <sighs> to incinerate himself. Ugh. Yeah, the movie is is kind of like a, a I mean, I, I say it's a tonal mess, but I mean that in the best way. Like, it is just, you never know in a scene what you're going to get because you have, <laughs> you have trash who's like, I like dad and like, just like, just being this like, such an apathetic character about like the idea of death. And then you have these two people that are dying and, and like, losing their blood pressure losing their heartbeat starting to get rigor mortis and then you have zombies running around saying brains and and saying send more paramedics it is like you don't know what you're getting in each scene and there's no rules there's there's no real rules of who's gonna live and who's gonna die who's gonna make it to the end because the two characters that you love the most are the ones who are dying from the beginning (laughs) yes Yes. speaking of characters we love can we talk about trash oh i love her (laughs) I love her. I I love her, and I was looking. I was looking up her character specifically because I was like, she is a, she is perfect. She they the producers came and saw the movie, like saw this the on set, and she was really okay with being full frontal nude. But the producers weren't, and made her made her wear a vaginal prosthetic. Yes, that made her look like yep. a Barbie doll. <laughs> yes, like that's yep. so bizarre to me. Because, like, Linnea Quigley was like, I don't give a shit. It never bothered me about the nudity. My dad was a doctor, so it didn't really phase me a lot. You know, everybody back then was so uptight about nudity, though. You know, you're not going to work again if you do nudity. But, you know, to me, it was like a great opportunity. Well, she's also kind of known for for her nudity in the movies in the 80s. She what 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 kind of shoot must that have been for her? Just she's I, I I was surprised this last time watching it of how much of the movie she was totally naked. There's there's even one point where she gets a um like a blanket or something. She wraps it around herself and literally then like minutes later it it gets stuck on the banister and gets torn off and she's naked again. And I'm like, well, like and what? like her t- like her boob is hanging out of the side of it too. Like it's just. <laughs> It's just full nudity. And I kind of love that because I feel like, yeah, it's really weird to have a woman naked the whole time. But, like, I feel like it, they lean into it, like, pretty – in, like, a funny way. And, like, so my friends and I who I watch this with are burlesque performers. And we were like, can we do a burlesque performance where one of us is trash and one of us is a zombie? No, that, that would be <laughs> so good. It was, like, begging to be a burlesque routine. Like, it was so funny. And we were laughing. We were like, is this just, like, what happens every time they hang out with trash? Like, she just, like, (laughs) talks about loving death and, like, getting eaten alive by old men and rip off her clothes. Like, uh, Well, they even say at one point, it's like, oh, shine the light over here. Trash is getting naked again. Like, this is, like, a thing that she does. She's like, yeah, I talk about um, dying and get naked. It's like, I mean, okay. You know what you're about, ma'am. I was bummed she was the first one that died, though. I know they needed to make her come back as a super zombie. Though I do love at the end when like they have like the cat, the light in the behind her, and she's like totally naked. And I'm like, <laughs> naked all right, a... all right. I love. Well, it. What I love about her is that she's so contrarian too, because they're like one person says, "I ain't in the mood to die tonight." She's like, oh, "I like death. I like death." <laughs> when they get up to the medical supply place, they say, "You know what a hideous, ugly place." She's like, "I like it. It's a statement." Like, she is just so, like, contrarian to everything they say. It kills me. Well, the, all of these characters are so ridiculous. Like, it's such a weird amalgamation of people, too. Because, like, every, most people, like, most of them are 
kind of punk. But then there's um, the girlfriend who's very preppy looking and like an all white. And it's just like a very interesting range of characters in this friend group. And my friend and I were laughing. We were like, how are they all friends? Like, how did they all meet? <laughs> like, how did this group of weird misfits come together? They all seem to kind of hate each other. But they also love each other. And how did this like come together? And it's such an interesting dynamic in the film to I watch know. them all fight but also love each other. It's it's interesting because because of the separation of of me not quite understanding what it was like in the eighties as a teenager, I, I like give it a pass. But I was thinking the same thing. I was like, well, maybe this sort of preppy look is a form uh, is a form of rebellion from the eighties. Mm. And I think the answer to that is probably no. I think think the answer is that that probably doesn't make any sense for that group to hang out together. <laughs> <laughs> but I can buy it. Exactly. Two of them don't really like each other either. Like uh, I I don't remember. Is it? Gosh, is it Casey and and Chuck, like the kind of like nerdy suit wearing guy, and the girl that that she that he gets stuck with? Like, I love. There's like a line in the movie where she's like, "Oh, Chuck, I really hate you, but hold me." <laughs> <laughs> and I love the like. I do kind of love the honesty, though. It kind of cracks me up. Like, oh, we're just like not even pretending to do that thing where like they have all that like fake kind of tension between friends in a lot of these movies, and it's like, oh, there's lots of like secrets and tension under the surface here there's like yeah no fuck it they like just don't like each other it's like very obvious that they're not trying to be like super traditionally likable characters which again yeah it would be it would be interesting to see uh, i mean we we could probably figure this out on the internet but how old uh dan (laughs) o'bannon the writer director was when he wrote the script because if he was a little bit older, then it, it could kind of be that it's just like an older guy who's like, I'm going to make these – give these kids a thing so they pop. I'm going to make them punk. And it's just like his idea of punk as opposed to what punk really was. That's I don't true. Know. I don't know. There's a lot well, of the music. The movie came out when he was – it came out when he was 39. So there you go. I just did the math. So he was 39 when the movie came out. So he probably was – you know, 37, 38 when he wrote it. Yeah. Or whatever. Can we, can we uh, just take a minute, uh, just a moment for, to sort of sing the praises of Dan O'Bannon, the guy who wrote, directed uh, this? Yes, yes, please. Can we talk about him right now? Uh, oh my God. He's, <laughs> I mean, so of course you guys know that he wrote uh, Alien. Yes. Oh yeah. And apparently Alien was, a, the original script had a much more similar tone to this movie, um, oh. which, which is these really sort of very dark and twisted moments interspliced with like a lot of comedy. And when the producers read it, they were like, well, we love some of this amazing horror, like the chest burster and the sort of the general like structure, but it's way too zany for us. And they brought in another, another screenwriter who came and took out all the zany and just leaned into all the horror. So you have like mm. a, it's like a 50% Dan O'Bannon uh, sort of effort in that movie. Oh, I, I love some of the scripts that he's written because he's all, he also was involved with Dead and Buried. Love it. Yeah. Um, so good. Which is a really good movie. And Life Force, which... <laughs> I don't like Life Force. <laughs> I mean, that one's a little iffy. But, um, I mean, he also, like, was part partly responsible for Total Recall. <sighs> and, like, like just, like, the, the stuff that he has been involved with are just... They, a lot of them, like, and I guess this makes sense that you're talking about how Alien once was. But they all kind of toe that line between, like, that sort of, like, horrific or, like, serious and, and kind of, like, the comedy. There's there's not a wasted shot in Return of the Living Dead. It's really no. insane. It's like the uh, 
you know, the smoke moves up through the pipes. There's a big push in of the, of the, the corpse twitching underneath the plastic. They come out of the door and it's sh- in the foreground are the butterflies. The butterflies are all twitching. Oh my like, gosh. Uh, that whole sequence is so good. So good. So good. There's not, nothing's wasted. And the characters are alive. Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. much was scripted if there's some improv going on there, but the, the back and forth banter, it's not, you don't feel a screenwriter just going like, and this is funny and this is funny. You kind of really feel these two, like cartoony characters interacting, which is which is so wild and, and, and fun. It's amazing to me that he's only directed two movies. Well, he, I mean, he's no longer with us, but that he only directed two movies in his in his career. You're right. This movie doesn't waste any shots at all. Like everything is purposeful. Everything feels right as as it should be. It does, and I think I, I think he had a rough go of it. I think he had uh, a lot of issues with producers i think he had some health issues that made him kind of a grouch so he was oh. sort of known to be difficult but of course oh. you know he's like this kind of curmudgeon genius that like just didn't really have enough opportunities to do more of this uh in a way that we sort of can celebrate to this day which is pretty sad that is a shame the the other thing that like really stuck out of me that i could kind of going from that whole alien uh, motif is this sort of like rebellious nature towards the government and towards like corporations um because like in in this in this film obviously the the there's like two fuck-ups with the army one that they were supposed to send these corpses to the darrow company the darrow chemical company and it arrived in this in louisville kentucky and the other one is the funny moment when when frank is like hey these things don't leak do they leak hell no these things were made by the u.s army corps of engineers no, this won't leak. It's made by the U.S. Army engineers, and he kicks it, and of course it sp- sprays out at him. But there know. is like, there is like a, a big kind of fu to the to the government in this in this film from the very beginning. That's true, and then and when things go wrong, that uh, he suggests, oh, let's call the number, and he's like, are you kidding me? The army? That's the last person we need to call. Like, it, you're right. That's interesting. Should we call the army? Should we call that number? <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you ever call that number when you when you were growing up? Um, I, I never I never have, no. I kind of wonder. I've always wondered. <laughs> <laughs> it probably doesn't go anywhere, but I wonder I'm how many gonna, people have called it. Are I'm you calling it? Pull it up. I am going to call it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do, we're doing this live on air. What What is it? It's 1-800-454-8000, it. I think? We'll do it live. <laughs> This is exciting. It's I know. Eight. I think it's. Gosh, I had that number written down. Where is it? Oh, it's um, it's one eight hundred five four five four eight thousand. Eight thousand. All right. Let's see. Let's call and I'll put it on speaker. <laughs> Can you hear it? Yeah. Oh yes. This call may be recorded for quality assurance. Oh my. We have a special promotion today for select callers. <laughs> If you are over 50, please press 1 now. If not, press 2. What are you? Thank you for your help with our survey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, cut, to, let's go, cut to... Wait, where are you guys located? I'm in Nebraska. I'm in Maryland. Okay, so if uh, so, uh, then if they're shooting the missile now, I'm safe. Do you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just heard a car drive by that sounded like a missile. I was like, oh shit. Oh no. <laughs> I wonder what happened if I said I was like over 50. Because I said, I said I was under 50. 
Oh, apparently, <laughs> apparently, on people, someone on Reddit said that a couple years ago it was a phone sex line. Of course, it was. <laughs> It, it feels like if, I mean, if they made it a real phone number, I wonder if at some one point in time they did have some sort of marketing materials connected to it because that would be so cool. That would be so cool if you called it and it was like, you've reached the army. Like that would have been <laughs> – That's how they say it? You've reached the, the army. Colonel Glover? You've reached you've – like, you've reached the army. <laughs> very official. Very, you know, very – I also really like – he's only in it like for a few seconds, but Colonel Glover is just – so funny because he's what? he's introduced talking to his wife and she's like hello dear how was your day the usual crap <laughs> and she's like i made your favorite dinner lamb chop he's like i had him for lunch like he's such a fucking curmudgeon and his house is so like like expensive yet also like gaudy as hell <laughs> I, i'm very curious what dan o'bannon this is probably going back to the sort of disdain for the military in some way but I remember as a kid watching this movie and always being like, why the fuck are we in Malibu at some mansion? Like, what? This has nothing <laughs> to do with the movie. And you don't even find out what it has to do with the movie till the very end. And I guess right. that it kind of ties it together. But, like, for the viewing experience, I, it's way too much time is spent with these military guys doing mundane things. No, it's it's absolutely true. It um, But it does it does crack me up as, as, as an adult watching just, like, his – utter disdain for his wife and her utter disdain for him <laughs> she's like so upset that her that this is what her life has been <laughs> has been re- resulted to because of them waiting for someone to call that stupid do, number do you think it's implying that he has been put in the best house and been given the best things with one job on the whole planet do you think that's what it's saying i mean he, it has to be because like i i mean i've i've met colonels they don't live in that kind of house wow <laughs> they're not as they're not that they're not that rich <laughs> i mean they're, they're they make good money but not that kind of money no not to have like a tennis court in the front of their fucking house so like maybe the it's saying the the importance of this one single job is so great that we're willing to sort of do anything we can to make sure there's a, somebody who's going to be on call at all times well i also love that it's right next to his bar <laughs> yeah right <laughs> The last thing I really wanted to dig into is is the the ending. Mm-hmm. It turns into like this very nightmarish situation. You have poor Freddy who's like been blinded and he's zombified and he's chasing after his girlfriend. You have Clue Clue, what's his Gulliger? last name? Gulliger, mm-hmm. like just leaving them, <laughs> and you have like just all of this like insanity happening at the at the very last minute it, it's it's sort of like a perfect climax in that way but it's also like it really emphasizes the kind of sadness of of the situation that all hope is is sort of lost does clue not not get killed i, I can't remember um i mean he dies when the bomb goes oh, off he's the one that calls oh right that's oh right 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 that's right well that's right. and then my other thing i mean you, terry you brought this up if like they still live in the atoms but uh, like nothing was killing them so what did like in what world did they think that that bomb and was going to help and then another line that really got me well sir only 20 square blocks destroyed less than 4000 dead general they're like oh only 4000 casualties like yeah. that just to me unfortunately like rings true today when we think about covid and like the mm-hmm. numbers and how people are so glib about thousands of deaths and how it's like you know for the greater good but how deaths are just numbers they're not people <clears throat> which is quite fascinating yeah that i mean i think i think it's clear that uh that o'bannon had whether he was very successful or not he had sort of a lot of things to say about 
human nature and yeah. uh, the government and uh, the value of life and all sort of packaged up in such such a, a fun, zany comic book movie. I would like to see more movies like this. I don't know. I don't know how you'd ever get a movie like this made outside of like a trauma right. system. Yes, I know. I but I want more movies like this. Me too. Well, and, and Mary Beth, you even offline uh, when you were watching this movie, you talked about kind of like that painful realization, self awareness of of death that was kind of going through this this film. And I was kind of curious about your thoughts on that. Oh, the self awareness of death and like mm-hmm. how they all knew just they the way were... it like portrayed death and everything in the in the film. I guess the self awareness about death to me is like death is over the entire film. I mean, they mentioned the living dead at the very beginning, and they open up these. They're like, oh, yeah, they're totally dead, and they're not. But also the thing that's, like, it's so self-aware because these zombies are aware of their own status. And I feel like that's something we don't see a lot in zombie movies. They're always just, like, kind of brainless, non-intelligent beings. But here, especially um, as Fred and Frank, um, like, are changing, you watch them turn into zombies. And, like, not in the kind of way that we see in a lot of other media where it's, like, they become violent like super violent and lose their all of their humanity, but instead they just like this very slow evolution of people, systems breaking down and just becoming very aware, like, oh shit, like I am actively dying. And there is just such a self-awareness about what it means to die and what death could be and how painful death can be, even just after like even after you're dead, just the pain of death. And there is a lot of self-awareness and kind of looking at what it means to be dead and being aware that you're dead yeah and it even starts uh you're just reminding me how it when in the beginning they're talking about skeletons with perfect teeth where do you get all these skeletons from oh they come from india india international treaty all skeletons come from india no kidding how come how the hell do i know how come the important question is where do they get all the skeletons with perfect teeth i'm gonna ask you a serious question how many people you know die with a beautiful, perfect set of choppers in their puss, huh? Nobody I can think of. Yeah. No, I think that there's a skeleton farm over in India. <laughs> Jesus. Come on, kid. Where do all these skeletons come from? Yes! Uh, right. And they're casually talking, oh, here's half dogs. Here's here's a corpse. Uh, here's, uh, yeah, here's perfect teeth skeletons. Throw them in the box. And then later when they go over to the mortuary, the mortician is uh, sort of breaking up the rigor mortis in a, uh, in a in a corpse, which is like... You know, on one side, it's it's showing you the realities of death in the real world, while also, and this is where I think Dan O'Bannon is just so brilliant, while also setting up why you would be in pain if you continued to live through the process. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. And that's why I think Freddy's character is, is so um, tragic to me. I mean, obviously, he's tragic because, you know, he becomes a zombie and whatnot. When when he is a zombie and he is he is basically yelling at his girlfriend he's like it was wrong of you to lock me up i had to hurt myself to get out and then later on he's like saying you made me break my hand off completely this time like it is just like his body is literally like breaking apart and he's gaslighting her so aware of (laughs) right (laughs) Right. he's gaslighting her and he's so aware of, of his own like frailty as he is becoming a zombie it's true so we have talked about Return of the Living Dead. Do we want to give this our ratings out of five? Yeah. All right, Terry, how many melting zombies out of five do you give Return of the Living Dead? Um, on Letterboxd, I put this as a, as a four and a half. I think this movie is a brilliant movie. I think it's a lot better than 
than young Terry gave it credit for. And it's, it's, I think it's a movie that absolutely should be talked about in the pantheon of zombie films because it is iconic. It has mm-hmm. created, um, a cultural awareness of, of, of zombies from even like the Simpsons of the way that the zombies are portrayed in there to the fast running zombie. Like, I, I think there's a lot that comes from this movie that we either a take for granted or B don't really ever think about. Um, but I also think that it, like we've talked about, and I think you particularly, Ryan, mentioned that it, it balances the sort of horror and, and comedy in a way that I don't see a lot of films doing so well. Um, and after this conversation, I, I mean, I'm going to pop it up. I think five melting zombies out of five, personally, I think this movie is is perfect. What about you, Mary Beth? I would agree. I think five melting zombies out of five. Again, like I, I first time seeing it, I really enjoyed it. But talking about it more has really given me like a deeper appreciation for not just what it accomplished like in the film itself, but what it meant for the horror community and like what it meant for the genre and how it helped evolve a very quickly budding subgenre of films. And it's chaotic in the most beautiful way. And the characters are very blunt. And I think it is both fun and nihilistic in a way that I've like Terry, you said I've never experienced with a movie before. And I wish I could see that in another film. So yeah, I'm going to give it five out of don't see the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen the sequels, Ryan? I have. And I, I'm not super keen on two, but I do think that three has some pretty, some pretty great stuff. That's what I've heard on, on Twitter. A lot of people were saying that three, I've, I've only seen the first two and the second one is just on a rewatch. It was just, it was painful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Three, three is worth watching. It has, it's, it's different. Um, and I feel like it has a nineties vibe, Mm. but there's some, uh, the, there, it's a love story first and foremost uh, between, uh, a, a young teenage guy and his girlfriend who's slowly turning the whole movie. And, oh, and, Jesus. and and they they sort of race across the city to go to the the factory where the zombie where the trioxin's being made to try to find a way to to fix it and it's uh, it's pretty cool. So Ryan, you have the final word. How many melting zombies out of five do you give Return of the Living Dead? I mean, I'm giving it an easy five out of five. It's one of my Hell favorite yeah. movies of all time for all the reasons that you guys mentioned. Uh, it is so scary. It is really funny it is the one of the most imaginative on a screenwriting level and executed with such zest and uh and passion and uh creativity and that's the kind of thing i look for in all of my favorite horror so five out of five hell yeah oh yeah we also didn't really touch much on the tar man but he's fantastic oh yeah him (laughs) just like him whatever he is good i I I will say this i would love to see the tar man portrayed by a skinnier guy because I can see what yeah. they're going for with the makeup, the sort of emaciated skeleton. But like, we have actors now, like the guy who who plays Mama in the Mama movie, that I think could really oh, elevate yes, that. Yes, Doug Jones. Yes. Oh yeah, Doug Jones. Yeah, and then Javier. Javier. Botet. Yes, yes, yes. Either of those guys, I think, would have could have tarmanded up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us to talk about Return of the Living Dead. Where can our listeners find you and what do you have you'd like to share that's coming up? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you just search my name, I'll pop up. There's not a lot of spindles out there. And uh, and I've got some interesting things in the work. I, I wrote a couple episodes for an anthology series, a horror anthology series that's supposed to be coming up soonish, Ooh, I hope. Cool. 
and uh, and I'm, I'm working on uh, my next feature right now that I'm really excited about that I can't talk about, but Ooh. it's very yeah. it's very much in the spirit of uh, the Mortuary Collection, not an anthology per se, but it has the same sort of fantastical uh, macabre sense of humor, uh, but um, uh, maybe a little bit more Amblin than TMC. So Ooh, yeah, cool. exciting. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Return of the Living Dead? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please, please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. It really does help us it out. It really does. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. And thank you to everyone for listening please stay safe out there please stay sane out there but most importantly stay creepy and until next time when you want to have fun and have scratchers to scratch there's a playful way you can do just that scratch with the key or acrylic nail scratch with the quill from a porcupine tail use a belt buckle from your friend lamar or scratch with your pick while you play guitar you can scratch in a bunch of different playful ways scratchers from the california lottery a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.